morning, church. Great to see you all. Welcome to Union Chapel. My name is Greg Paris. We're so glad you're here. Uh, just want to give greetings. Uh, Beth, my wife and I were in Florida the last couple of weeks, and last weekend we were at one of our church plants in Cape Coral, Florida, Gulfside Church. Paul and Tia Erminger, originally from our staff, went to Cape Coral a couple of years ago and planted this church, Gulfside, and it was a great experience. Got to preach there last weekend, and they send their love and greetings to you. It was very gratifying. I, I preached last week on the Spirit-filled church. What does it mean that a church is full of God's presence? And at the end of that, it was very gratifying, very satisfying. So many people came up to, to Beth and me and expressed their gratitude and appreciation. This church, God has used to change my life. We love Paul and Tia. We were just so thankful for Union Chapel and the investment you made to make this church happen. So many wonderful and warm, positive comments. And so I just wanted to share that good news with you and thank you. These are people you don't know, but they have found Jesus because of your generosity and your prayers. And so thank you. I wanted to give you an update on, on how well things are going. I preached twice there last week. They're in two services now in a local high school, and they're doing a great job. So... Um, good for us and good for them. That's great news, isn't it? So be encouraged by that report. Yeah, all good. <laughs> Pastor Glenn has launched this series that we're in currently called God's at War. It's a pretty dramatic title. It has to do with the temptation all of us have to get distracted from our primary and most important relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And any Anyone can get distracted at any time and kind of lose their way. Today, I want to talk about the God of love, the God of love and how love sometimes knocks us off course and can actually be detrimental to us. And I hope we'll learn from that. Today's text is found in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, the most historic book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 29. This picks up the story of a young man named Jacob. We all remember Abraham, the father of the Hebrew faith, Abraham, then Isaac, his son, and one of the sons of Isaac was Jacob. And Jacob now is a young man, and this is a love story. It's, uh, it, it doesn't really feel like it fits into scripture all that well. It, it's almost like The Bachelor BC. You know, it's like reality TV, you know. It's, it's really a fa fascinating soap opera. And so I'm going to read the entire 29th chapter of Genesis today. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word, so thanks for doing that as you're able. And as I said, I'm going to read this whole chapter, so if you get tired, just sit down. You'll be fine. <laughs> then Jacob continued on his journey. Remember, he's a young guy now, and he came to the land of the eastern peoples, and there he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the, mouth, the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him. They answered. Jacob asked, well, is he well? And he, yes, he said, they, they said, and here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high 
It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to the pasture. We can't, they replied, till all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Now you might note that earlier we noted that the rock over the well was a large rock. Chances are this may be a two or three man job to move the rock off the well. When Jacob lays eyes on Rachel, something happened to him and he just took care of it himself. He's got some energy now for the job. Yeah. When Jacob saw Rachel, he rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well, watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. Now, this is first impressions. I think it's a little too needy of him to, you know, be weeping. Oh, you're a relative of mine. It's unbelievable. We, we, our fathers are related. It's so warm, so wonderful. And now he's crying. He's kissing her. I, th- I think it's kind of pitiful. But, you know, everybody's got their own style. And that was his. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebecca. So she ran and told her father. Now, this would indicate she's pretty excited about the moment too. She ran to tell her dad. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. And after Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes. A a great personality. But Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Not just pretty, but curved in all the right places and beautiful. She's a beauty queen. Jacob was in love with Rachel. Well, as much as he can know her by just simply laying eyes on her. I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Everyone go, oh, that's so so romantic. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was little Miss Weak Eyes. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? 
Laban replied, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, and then we'll give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it's because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon, and again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me. Because I have borne him three sons, so his name was Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, and then she stopped having children. God, give us insight today in this important subject. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Everybody, everybody worships someone or something. Everybody, you do, I do, all of the created children of God do, every human being who's ever lived, it is innate within us, it is wired in our DNA, God has made us for worship. It is one of the primary purposes of our existence, which is to worship. Of course, God designed us to worship, to be worshipful, so that we would be able to relate to him in appropriate and meaningful ways. And yet what happens to us in our fallen, sinful world is we easily get distracted. And sometimes we misplace our primary affections, our first love, and we place it on other things or on other people. You can go to any place in the world and you'll discover people are worshiping. You can go to the remotest jungles of South America, uh, a tribal people that has never had exposure to the outside world. And if you go into that culture and you study the culture, you'll discover these people now historically have been people who worship. They, they make up gods of their own. They worship their ancestors. It goes on and on, but they're worshiping. You can go to the most sophisticated, most uh, cosmopolitan cities in the world. Uh, you can go to Rome. You can go to Paris. You can go to New York, L.A., and you will find they're the most educated, sophisticated, urbane people who have ever lived uh, in, the, in the world. And you will discover every last one of them are worshiping something or someone. For all of us, we have idols. It's food or sex or entertainment or success or money or power or achievement or romance or family. Everyone, everywhere worships something or someone. Now, the biblical term, when this tendency to worship goes awry, when it loses its focus and gets distorted, the biblical term is idolatry. To worship something or someone that is not meant to be the primary focus of our lives. Look at this statement from John Calvin. He's a notable theologian from another generation. I'll put it on the screen for you. He said, every one of us is even from his mother's womb, a master craftsman of idols. And we're all guilty. We all identify with this. I mean, we all get this. This isn't news, is it? 
we're all challenged by things that easily and people that easily distract us from our primary call to devotion to God. And by the way, making God as our primary focus of adoration and esteem and love is appropriate because he is a magnificent God. He is the God of gods. He has, he has made us and he has revealed himself to us through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He is a good God. He is a great God. He's a magnificent God. And he's worthy of our praise and our affection. Indeed. So all of us are tempted with these little gods, these lesser gods, attempting to distract us from the worship of the one true God. If we think about it, we'll discover that all, all of the sins that we struggle with, all the discouragement we experience is actually a consequence of idolatry, just focusing on the wrong thing or the wrong person. Let me ask you a question. Who do you say, I love you to? To whom do you say those words, I love you? Your spouse, your children, your parents, close friends, grandchildren. Who is that special someone who means everything to you? Now, stay with me. The name that comes to your mind right now an answer to that question may reveal a love that you have put your hope in and therefore has become a false god, an idol to you. Now, don't, don't push back too quickly. I need you to hear me out. It's possible that a relationship with a person has replaced your relationship with Jesus. Now, our culture holds up romantic love as first and foremost. I mean, it's the greatest and noblest of all pursuits. I mean, the message that our culture gives to those who aren't married or at least Dating someone is that you won't be content or complete unless you're in a relationship with another person. And it starts early. You know, we get it from Disney, from the time we're children. There's a prince and there's a princess, and these two need to get together. This is how you live happily ever after. It's fascinating to me that as you study Christian, Christian culture and Christian, uh, Christian books in today's culture, even those Christian books designated to people who are single, and there's a large percentage of the population of single adults in our culture right now, but most of the books on singlehood is about how to get a mate. In fact, one of the books that's on the market right now, Christian book entitled, If Men Are Like Buses, How Can I Catch One? <laughs> so you, you kind of get the theme. Our pop culture tells us that love makes the world go round, that all you need is love. Pick the cliche. What seems clear is that romantic love is the most important subject we have. Our, our, uh, our science now is in keeping with this. It's uh, tracking with it. Psychologist Dorothy Tenov coined the term limerence back in the 1970s. It's now a medical term for being lovesick. Lovesick, limerence, overpowering it, infatuation, intrusive thinking, agonizing over, over whether the feelings are reciprocated, fear of rejection, you know, staying awake at night, fussing about this relationship. Dopamine is that chemical that our brain releases and causes pleasure in the human experience. And this happens during limerence. Dopamine's released, energy's increased, appetite is decreased, it's blissful. We can just describe it this way. It's temporary insanity. Folks lose their mind. And they experience this pleasure. 
Now, the bad news is those who study limerence say that it burns itself out after 18 to 36 months. So that's when the honeymoon is over and the marriage starts or some other relationship has ensued. The Beatles tell us all we need is love. Burt Backrack asserts that what the world needs now is love, sweet love. Robert Palmer might as well face it. He's addicted to love. <laughs> the rocker Meatloaf, one of my favorites, perhaps one of yours, assures us that he would do anything for love. Yeah, although later in the song, he says that though he'd do anything for love, he won't do that. Now, the problem with the song is he doesn't define that. We don't know what he's talking about. Maybe it's uh, he won't share the remote. You know, he won't close the toilet lid, won't wash his own underwear. We don't know what that is. He's addicted to love. The song raises a good question, though, doesn't it? Would you do anything for love? And if so, then romantic love maybe has officially reached God's status in your life. Romantic love is a good thing, but when we make it essential to life, then it can become a false God. Hear me out now. Stay with me. Two points today. Here's the first one. You might, might want to write this down. Looking for love. Lots of people looking for love. In Genesis 29, we have this story that gets our attention. We've already heard it, read it, and talked about it a bit. This is Abraham's grandson, Jacob. He falls in love with this young, beautiful thing called Rachel. The text says, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, we don't know that Jacob was in love per se, but he was experiencing limerence. He was, he was uh, experiencing something. He, he, was, he was young and he was ready to be married. And he didn't really know anything about Rachel except she was beautiful. And we also read that Laban had this other daughter, this older daughter, Leah. We're told she had weak eyes. And so now we listen to verse 20. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. That is so sweet, isn't it? I mean, you could see that on a Valentine's card. Maybe you, maybe you read it on a Valentine's card this past week. It's really sweet. And there is a completely irrational side of love when we have a hard time thinking objectively about people or even things that we love. That's why for some of you, this message may be a hard one for you to hear because you rely on this so much. Our emotions get involved and we don't see things very clearly. We've learned over the years that trying to help couples when they're preparing for marriage that, that it takes a really um, intentional effort to try to help people prepare for marriage because most couples are experiencing this limerence. You know, dopamine's just firing all, all through their system and they're glazed over. So there are two things that we found critically important if we're going to help people prepare in any way, you know, premarital counseling. And the two things are, are a high structure for example, we've got, you've got to go through the issues that we know that couples will face. And it doesn't matter if the couple's 18 years old or 50 years old. The, you know, they're, they're glazed over usually. You have to put the chairs in the office close together because they always want to be touching each other. You know, you can, you can always tell, you know, they're just all the time. And, and they're not listening. And so, you, you know, highly structured, you go, you know, point number seven is, all right, managing the in-laws. This is a subject you need to think about. You need to process this. You identify boundaries. 
identify roles in those boundaries. How, who's going to speak with the mother-in-law? You know, these are, and, and so you bring this question up, people are glazed over and they go, oh, that's no big deal. It's a big deal. And you better pay attention, but it's hard. And so highly structured premarital counseling, and it has to have some longevity to it. So there's got to be repetition. You just got to keep bringing it up until folks actually understand. So three to six months, you know, is what we try to accommodate with people because of that. After Jacob now serves his time, he serves for seven years. And in verse 21 from our text, Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to, I want to have sex with her. This you probably won't find on a Hallmark card. But maybe we shouldn't be too harsh on the boy. You know, he's waited seven years. So there's something there. But now all of a sudden you get this, this twist, this soap opera thing. This, this, is, this is the Bachelor BC. <laughs> this is this, is, this where it gets wild. The very next verse. So Laban, the dad, brought together all the people of the place, gave a feast. So now the, 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 it's a big wedding deal. It's, it's moving into the late night. It's gotten dark. Probably folks are drinking too much. Probably Jacob had too much to drink. And as they're going off to, to their own tent to consummate the marriage, Laban slips Leah <laughs> into Jacob's hand. And again, he's probably had too much and it's dark and he goes into his tent, no lights on. He consummates the marriage. Imagine now you're Jacob, you wake up the next morning. Your head is clear. You're reminiscing. You have a sense of fulfillment. You're satisfied. You're now married. You've worked hard to earn this bride. She's beautiful. You love her. She's everything you ever dreamed of. Every minute has been worth it to you. And now you've consummated this marriage and you are a happy man. And then he rolls over. <laughs> and his eyes meet the weak eyes. <laughs> shoot <laughs> it's a shock to say the least yeah <laughs> verse 25 records Jacob's response to Laban when he said what is this you've done to me that is not the phrase I would have used I don't think it's much more polite than I would have been I, I served you for Rachel didn't I why have you deceived me now you keep reading the story and of course, shortly thereafter, a week or two later, Laban gives his beautiful daughter Rachel to Jacob as well, but it becomes a big mess, a big mess. And here's what happens. Leah, the older, loves her husband, and she wants more than anything else for him to love her. But he's really not that interested in Leah because Rachel is the one he loves. Leah spends her life then hoping and dreaming of the day she will feel love from her husband. Can you, can you sense that? And so she makes her life goal to win the heart of her husband, Jacob. That's what she puts her hope in. She puts her hope in that relationship. So here's what happens. Leah became pregnant, gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. For she said, it's because the Lord has seen my misery Surely my husband will love me now. Reuben means misery. Then she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I'm not loved, 
he gave me this one too, so she named him Simeon. Now these names may be ringing a bell for some of you. You'll recall that Jacob eventually had 12 sons, and the names of these sons became the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, historically. So you have Reuben and Simeon. She again conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now, at last, my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So his name was Levi. And so Leah is giving Jacob these boys, and it's a great blessing and a great honor. And she believes that somehow she'll get now from her husband Jacob what she needs. She needs to know that she's loved and cared for and esteemed and valued. And every time a child comes along, she finally believes that he will now love her. And it had become the God she worshiped. I think it's really just the idea of love that we worship in our culture. Have you thought about this? Maybe you haven't. And they lived happily ever after. You know, that's a phrase we use. In our culture, romantic love is held up as this ultimate uh, expression of human experience the subject of countless books, uh, many movies. It's the plot line there. It's the theme of almost every song, poetry and art. And we shouldn't misunderstand. These relationships are good and they're honorable and they're godly. I mean, marriage is a God-created God institution, God-designed. He thought it up. He, he thought it. He wrought it. He bought it. He, he, he encourages it. Marriage is a powerful foundational point of reference when it comes to human interaction and relationship and, and the fabric of society. A family is essentially important to God's original design and plan. And so you have a man and a woman united in covenant, and this is a powerful, powerful thing. This is, this is God's original idea. And, and so it's good, it's right, and it's godly. Um, this this past week, I was uh, in another state, and I was with a salesman. He was early 30s, and we were talking about business. And then when the moment was right, I said, do you have a family? And he said, yeah, I have two sons, and, and the second one was just born a couple of months ago. And the next question was, are you getting any sleep? And he looked at me, and he said, well, he said, I'm getting some sleep, but my girlfriend isn't. And I said, um, how long you been with this girl? Well, three or four years now. I said, so you made two babies with this girl? Yes, we have two, two sons. <laughs> I said, maybe it's time to marry that girl. Now, it's none of my business. But he doesn't know me, doesn't know what I do. I didn't tell him what I do. That always ruins it. I said, I've been married for 42 years. I said, you know, God, God actually says that a man who finds a wife finds a good thing. Why haven't you married that girl? And he goes into this story. Well, my parents got divorced and that was very difficult for me. And I just, I, just, I don't have any confidence that I can make it work. I don't trust myself. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm afraid. And I said, I said, you shouldn't be afraid. You should never be afraid to do the right thing. And I said, God, 
God wants to bless your life and your family. So you've got to do the right things. We talked a little bit more about that. I concluded with this. I said, uh, I said, I bet you love your sons. Oh, I said, I love those guys. I said, what kind of men do you want your sons to become? He said, well, I have a lot of dreams for my sons. I said, listen to me. Your sons will become just like you. And so what you want to do is be the man that you want your sons to become. Because they'll become just like you. He finally looked at me and he said, you know, it's really interesting you're saying this to me. He said, for the last several weeks, it's like every few days, someone comes into the store here and tells me the same things you're telling me. And I said, you know, maybe God is trying to communicate with you. Maybe you ought to listen. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about this. I said, I'll be praying for you. What's your girlfriend's name? I said, I'll be praying for both of you. God thinks marriage is a great thing. We should embrace it as a great thing. It's a God-instituted thing. It's a powerful thing. It's foundational to, to, to who we are and how we go through the world. And so it's good and it's godly and it's great. And friendship is good. And we should love one another. And we should, we should admire one another, encourage one another, support one another. It, it should have all of the virtue and, and, and strength of, of covenant when we are together in relationships. These are good and godly things. The problem comes when we allow such a relationship to replace our devotion to God. That's when it becomes distorted. That's when it loses its way. I was talking to a young mother who explained to me that a love for her children had become a false god in her life. Isn't that interesting? Let me explain. The problem wasn't so much that she made them too high of a priority. I'm not even sure that's possible. The problem was that they were controlling her. Follow it now. Whether or not she had a good day was determined by her children. Her children had the power to make her angry and disappointed or happy and joyful. So she wasn't looking to the joy of the Lord to be her strength. She was looking to the joy of her children to be her strength. And that's what happens when we worship gods of love, these lesser gods, these little gods. It, it distorts and destroys. Ultimately, nothing is more destructive to our love life than to put romantic love on the throne instead of God. It's just not a good idea. It puts incredible pressure on the relationship because we're saying to the person, I want you to do for me what God alone can do for me. That's a lot of pressure. And given enough time and pressure, that relationship will start to crack. Look at this statement on the screen. I want, I want you to really comprehend this. When you make a relationship with someone else your God, it will eventually be marked with disappointment and bitterness. Now, I'm talking to someone here today. I know I am. This happens to many people. And we can fall in and out of this temptation as we go through life. Many years ago, my wife Beth I came home one night and she said, I need to talk to you about something. She said, God revealed something to me today and it was really helpful to me. And this was five or six years into our marriage and we were going a thousand miles an hour and we had children at that time and, you know, life. And she said to me, I have been 
This is what God revealed to me, that I have been relying on you to be for me what only God can be for me. And she said, I realized today that it wasn't fair to you and it wasn't fair to our marriage for me to expect you to fulfill the needs, all the needs of my life. And I thought that is really profound. And her life changed. You know, I, I'm the closest one to her. I can tell you that her life and our relationship changed after that day because she saw things from the right perspective. And she realized she couldn't look to me to be the one who satisfied her or the one who would save her or the one that would be her primary source of significance. What she realized and what we all must realize is that only God and our relationship with him can provide the ultimate sense of meaning, significance, and personhood in our lives. I am who I am, not because of the way my friends treat me or the way my wife rela relates to me. I am who I am because of the way God relates to me. I am who God says I am. I am who God made me to be. I am who God has, has filled me with the potential I have. That's who I am. And when I realize who I am in right relationship with God, then that frees me to be in right relationship with the most important people in my life. So God has ordered our lives in such a way that he is to be our most significant relationship. And when we get that right, then our relationship with our spouse, our children, our parents, our friends begin to line up. If you're experiencing frustration in some of your key relationships, then it could very well be because of the God of love. You're, you actually have made an idol of the needs that you have that you expect from human relationships. And so here's my, here's my take home. Here's my prescription to you. If this is something where you have misplaced your hope into something or someone other than God, here's my suggestion to you as a next step. Don't go back and watch several past episodes of Dr. Phil or get some self-help book or even sign up for counseling. Don't do that first. Make first a priority of giving your full attention to making Jesus the great affection in your life and then see what happens. Reorient your focus on him and make the effort, intentional effort to develop intimacy and relationship with him and then see how the other relationships start to unfold, how it changes your perspective. Now, here's the second point. Just write this down. It's very brief. A new kind of love, a new love. So we know that Leah, the older sister, is desperate to find satisfaction from God in a romantic way so that every time she gave birth to a child, she thought, maybe now my husband will love me, will give me what I need. But it just never happened. Then we find this compelling twist at the end of Genesis 29. This is very powerful. Watch what happens. Verse 35, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now here's the, here's, the, here's the moment. This is profound. This time she said, I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah and she stopped having children. So she finally stopped looking to her husband for those things that only God can give. And she turned to God and said, this time I will praise the Lord. And she named that boy Judah which, by the way, is a play on the Hebrew word for praise. This time I will praise the Lord. 
Oh, I'll call him Judah, which means praise. It's really great. Leah is rejected by her father, rejected by her husband in life, but then she finally stops expecting them to meet her needs and she turns to God. Leah chose to find her identity. She chose to find her value and her hope in the love of God. It took the rejection of a man to help her realize the love and acceptance of God. The Apostle Paul gives us a a fascinating uh, piece of scripture from 1 Corinthians 7. This is so contrary, even shocking to our modern ears, but here's what he said. He said, when you're unmarried, you're free to concentrate simply on pleasing the Lord. So he said, look, I'm a single guy and I know there are a lot of single people out there. And so for all you singles, remember marriage involves in so many ways demands on your attention, the time and energy that married people spend on caring for and nurturing each other. The unmarried person can spend in becoming whole and holy instruments of God. First Corinthians seven. Most of the Christian books on singleness, as I mentioned today, encourage you to find a partner. Paul comes along and says, hey, look, if you're unmarried, perfect. This way you can give your full attention and devotion to God. Fascinating, isn't it? Judah, of course, may be a name that you recognize. And in Matthew's gospel, we find the genealogy of Jesus from his Hebrew roots. And the genealogy is listed there in the first chapter. And so it begins like Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac was the father of Jacob and Jacob was the father of, and of course we know Jacob had 12 sons. His favorite son was Joseph, you know, the multicolored coat and his brothers hated him because he was the favorite one. And here's, and Jacob had had Joseph with Rachel, his favorite, you know, the, the woman he loved. And also Benjamin was born of Rachel and, and so he had his favorites. But in the genealogy of Jesus, we see it very clear that Jacob was the father of Judah, the fourth son of a rejected wife, a hand-me-down wife, becomes the favored one. So God had a good plan for his marriage and it came when she turned to God as her source of fulfillment and her source of hope. Are you getting the point today? Really just one point, isn't there? Please don't look to anything or anyone else to bring you ultimate meaning, significance, self-awareness. That can only be found in your relationship with God. All the other affections, wrongly prioritized, become idols and will fail you. He who has in your let him hear. Could I help you a little bit further by praying for you? Would you bow your heads with me? I just want you to think with me just for a moment. Let me, let me try to help you as we conclude. I ask you this question. Are you disappointed in your love life? If you're single, Do you find that your life is somehow not complete because you haven't found that special someone? Or if you're married, do you find that your husband or wife is constantly disappointing you? Do you find yourself wondering if maybe you married the wrong person, your soulmate's out there somewhere? Now listen to your pastor, listen. How you answer those questions reveals where you've put your hope, your hope. And where you put your hope 
answers the question of what God you really worship. Let me ask you another question. Who is it that completes you? That completes you? Perhaps you have the challenge of a struggling marriage. Can the pain of that be keeping you away from God? Could you be living as Leah did, so focused on repairing what is damaged that you forget to praise and worship God? What if in the sad event that things don't improve in your marriage, can you find satisfaction in God? Perhaps you're single. Can you take Paul's challenge to give all the more of yourself to the kingdom of God? Sometimes we have to dethrone idols before we're ready for the blessings God has for us. Could it be that you're so focused on finding someone that you're not focused enough on becoming the person God wants you to be? So here's our prayer. Let me say it for us. Oh God, be our first love in heart, in mind, in soul, in every relationship, in Jesus' name. And the people said, amen. Would you stand with us?